Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the fifth episode in our new series linked to our vows issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we will be speaking with a very special guest, friend of the podcast and of the magazine, Robert P. George. Robert P. George is an American legal scholar, political philosopher, and public intellectual who serves as the sixth McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Welcome, Robbie. Well, thank you. Uh, I want to say it's always a pleasure uh, to be involved with uh, Plow. I am a great uh, friend of the Bruderhof uh, community. The community means a great deal to me. The community's done a lot for me and my family, and I really do appreciate it. And I am an avid uh, reader of uh, Plow and learn so much uh, from reading the magazine. So thanks for having me on. That's very encouraging to hear. That's the kind of thing that we like print out if it's written down and then put on our bulletin board to give ourselves a boost. So I guess to start out, you've been in this kind of work of um, sort of pro-life argumentation, among other things, um, but uh, pro-life has been the, the focus of a lot of your work, at least for kind of longer than Pete and I have been alive. What were your early kind of disagreements with your current self? Like... <laughs> Um, what have been, how, how did you get to you, where you are intellectually in terms of conviction, both religious and philosophical, and what did you used to think that you no longer think? Well, I was uh, recruited into the pro-life movement when I was an adolescent by my mother. Uh, she was involved in the local Right to Life uh, group in our community in uh, West Virginia, in Appalachia. And uh, therefore, I've been pro-life my entire life, as long as I've thought about uh, these issues. I was the first of five children, all boys. I uh, don't have a very clear memory of uh, my mother being pregnant with a brother right behind me because I was too small to retain a memory from them. But I remember my three youngest uh, brothers when my mom was carrying them. Uh, and it was very clear to me, even before I'd ever heard of abortion or the pro-life cause, that what mom had inside her were not potatoes or rocks or alligators. They were little babies, uh, little boys or girls, turned out to be all boys. Uh, but when I was 12 or 13 or 14, my mom recruited me into the pro-life movement. Uh, this was before Roe versus Wade. That's how ancient I am. Uh, this would have been around 1971 when a small number of American states had begun removing protections that had historically been there uh, for unborn babies. Uh, New York was one of those states, California was one, uh, Colorado uh, was another. And so what became the big struggle over abortion began then. Then, of course, in 1973, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Roe versus Wade, basically eliminating all effective protection for uh, children in, in the womb across the entire United States. It was on January 22nd, 1973. Uh, on that day, I can tell you where I was and what I was doing. I have a very clear memory of it. I was in high school and I was working a pro-life table, handing out pro-life literature at the university near where I lived, West Virginia University. And a student walked by and said to us, hey, there's been a big decision from the Supreme Court on your issue. And we asked him, well, what was it? What did the court say? And he said, I don't know. I just heard that there was a big issue. I heard it on the radio. Now, of course, in those days, you couldn't get uh, your, your news immediately because there was no internet or anything like that. So we all rushed to find a radio. And even then, we had to wait until the hour because the news came on the hour. <laughs> Otherwise, you were listening to music or something like that. So when the hour came and, and we got the broadcast news, we got the very bad news that the decision had been very unfavorable for unborn babies, that legal protection had been removed from unborn children. The initial report said it was for the first trimester of pregnancy, the first three months. It turned out to be even worse than that. It was the removal of, of uh, formal protections for unborn babies all the way through six months, and really even further than further than that, effectively. Uh, so it was a catastrophic decision from the point of view of anybody who believed, as I believed then and believe now and have always believed, in the profound and inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. And on that day, I said, as did every pro-life person I know, 
and new, I said, this will not stand. We will do whatever it takes. We will work for as long as it takes. We had no idea it would take this long, but we said we will work for as long as it takes to overturn this unjust decision. And the pro-life movement went to work that day and we worked for 49 years, five months and two days before we finally achieved our goal of reversing Roe versus Wade. Now it's very important uh, for everyone to understand and, and not only do non-Americans not understand this, a lot of Americans don't understand this, that reversing Roe versus Wade does not make a single abortion unlawful. It does not protect a single unborn child. What it does is remove the impediment that prevents the American people in the states acting through their legislatures to protect unborn babies. It removes that impediment. So now we can do the hard work of democracy to restore protection to the lives of our precious unborn brothers and sisters, the tiniest, most vulnerable members of the human community. Um, now, when that news came down, of course, I was very gratified. How could I not be? having devoted so much of my life, as had so many others, many great heroes who didn't live to see the day when Roe fell. But the overwhelming thought in my mind, which I recorded immediately, actually, in a tweet, in this social media age, that's what you do. <laughs> so the thought that came into my mind was not one of elation or triumph. Uh, rather, it was President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address where very somberly, very soberly, he recalled that the Civil War had been fought between people both sides of which thought they were in the right. Both were fighting for what they believed justice required. They both thought they were fighting for a moral cause. And even though Lincoln could not see the morality of the cause for which the Confederacy fought, he could not judge that to be moral any more than I can judge the pro-abortion position to be moral. Nevertheless, as he said, while we have to fight and fight hard for justice, let us judge not lest we be judged. Let's not be too harsh. Let's remember that the people against whom we've been locked in this struggle are people who are doing their best by their best lights to do what they believe morality and justice require. And so Lincoln concluded that speech, which was really quite short. He, he concluded that second inaugural address by saying, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God has given us to see the right, let us complete the work we're in. And that's the thought that came to my mind. I knew that across the country, while people like me were filled with gratitude that this had finally come, this day we worked for it finally come. There were lots of other people, not bad people, people who were doing their best to fight for a cause they thought was just, who were going to be feeling tragedy and outrage because they believed that the court was now doing a grave injustice. I don't want to judge them any more than Lincoln wanted to judge the supporters of the Confederacy or even those who supported slavery, even though we have to fight against the evil that they are themselves unwittingly advancing. But I do want to proceed as Lincoln advised us to proceed with malice toward none, with charity for all, and with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. And that's the future, Susanna, of the pro-life movement. It's moving forward with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, but without demonizing anybody, without punishing anybody, uh, without uh, uh, treating our adversaries as anything less than fully human beings who are doing their best by their best lights to do what they think is right. Let's go forward with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, with malice toward none, with charity for all. And we do have a lot of work to do because as I say, Roe versus Wade simply removes the impediment to doing the hard work of democratic citizenship and restoring protection to the laws of unborn babies.
uh, to the law for unborn babies, I should say. And we also have to remember, as the pro-life movement has always done, that we love mother and child alike and equally. We recognize that there are women who are in very difficult situations because of an unexpected pregnancy, a difficult pregnancy. There are women who are subjected to pressures of all sorts, economic pressure, social pressure, pressure from boyfriends, from husbands, from parents, from employers who don't want them to be pregnant, who see the easy way out for them as that woman having an abortion. It's a complex set of considerations, a complex set of factors that leads some women, often desperate, to want to seek abortions. So we need to reach out in love to our sisters who are in need, loving equally mother and child. And I think there's a cultural dimension to that. There's much that can be done by private initiative and charitable work. There's a role for government in that, including public funding of support for women. There are cultural norms that can be addressed to make sure that, uh, that having children and bringing up children does not unnecessarily impede the career prospects or educational opportunities uh, for, for women. There's a lot that we can do and we need to do it all. We need to be comprehensively pro-life. And that's not foreign to the pro-life movement. Our adversaries depict us as being hard-hearted, not caring about women's equality, not caring about women's needs, but we're not that. And now we have to get about the work of protecting unborn babies while we're doubling our efforts to protect their mothers as well. And that's what I will devote the rest of my life to. That's fascinating. I love the uh, reference to Lincoln's second inaugural address. And Robbie, this is a question I've been looking forward to asking you ever since the Dobbs ruling came down. You know, if you think of Lincoln speaking at that time, and of course he didn't live to see it, but it was a very long struggle uh, after the victory uh, of the Union side uh, before first slavery was fully put an end to in the American South and then uh, legalized discrimination, lynching, segregation. Um, it was a multi-decade struggle. So how should we look at that? What, what does come after Roe? Um, you, you mentioned, you know, there's the cultural, there's the political, there's social and moral norms. What does the person who has been a committed pro-lifer do now? How, how does one decide, you know, what to kind of put one's shoulder to? Well, I think all of us need to support legal protection for the unborn. That will mean that for some of us, we need to be uh, active uh, in the political sphere. All of us as voters, nobody is excused from this. All of us need as voters to prioritize the pro-life issue. No question about that. Uh, but not all of us need to be in positions of political leadership. Some of us need to do that. Some of us are called to do the intellectual work that needs to be done. That's where I've tried to make my uh, contributions. Uh, that's where I will continue to make uh, my contributions. Uh, many of us are called to work hands-on uh, with women at uh, crisis pregnancy uh, centers and with, and with children, uh, bringing the love and care and material and moral and spiritual assistance uh, to our sisters uh, who, who need that. Um, so there, there's, there are different vocations, different callings, different things that we can do, but we all need to be doing our bit. We can all pray. Uh, as people have prayed now for nearly 50 years for the success of the pro-life movement, um, we can continue and we need to continue praying and for asking God's blessing uh, on, our, on our work. Uh, there is so much to be done. No one person uh, or no one profession uh, can do this by himself or by itself. It's, it, it's just a big, large number of things that need to be done and we all need to be doing uh, our part. It's going to be a long struggle as the civil rights struggle was a long struggle and even that struggle continues to uh, to today. To some extent these kinds of issues are are perennial. Um, I believe in an, uh, what's sometimes called uh, a um, gradualist or incremental strategy 
uh, for protecting unborn babies. I know we're not going to be able to get ideal legislation that protects all unborn children uh, all at once. It's going to take time. We're going to have to get victories where we can. We need to work at the state level. I think eventually this issue will shift to the federal level and Congress uh, will uh, enact uh, laws. Uh, uh, it, it won't completely displace the role of the states, but I think eventually uh, the federal government will play a role. Uh, I believe under the Constitution, uh, the federal government is entitled to. Some conservatives and some pro-life people don't think the federal government is entitled to play a role in this area. I disagree with them. Uh, I think Section 5 of the 14th Amendment empowers Congress uh, to protect uh, unborn persons uh, in their equal protection and due process rights, especially relevant here are their equal protection rights under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Professor John Finnis of Oxford and I submitted a brief in the Dobbs case in which uh, we just provided an avalanche of evidence to show that uh, the original public meaning of the word person at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which includes a provision saying that uh, no state shall deny any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or any person in its jurisdiction of the equal protection of the laws. We showed definitively, this is just not really contestable anymore, the evidence is too overwhelming, that the word person did include the unborn. We, we see this from medical treatises, we see this from legal treatises, we see this in legal, legal cases. Uh, in the 1820s, an important scientific discovery, the discovery of the mammalian ovum by Carl von Baer, uh, made a made the science of embryology possible. We 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 got modern human embryology as a result of von Baer's discovery of of how things work of the mammalian uh, ovum and the process of uh, fertilization. So we began to see as early as the uh, 1820s that human development begins with the formation of a new human being in the earliest embryonic stage, that then develops literally by an internally directed process from the embryonic into and through the fetal infant child and adolescent stages and ultimately into adulthood with his or her determinateness and unity and identity uh, fully intact. And by 1868, this was being reflected in laws around the nation. The historic common law protections of unborn children were significantly expanded by statutes in a campaign led, you'll be interested to hear perhaps, by the American Medical Association in no small measure uh, because of the uh, discovery of uh, how human life actually does begin and the realization that we have a human being from the earliest developmental stage. It has been a long time since there was any real doubt about uh, when life begins or, or whether uh, the human embryo is indeed a human being. We've known this now for a very, very long time, and there's no excuse for not knowing it. The science is very clear. It's beyond uh, dispute. You've submitted that brief. You've um, obviously worked a great deal on the concept of fetal personhood. Um, and this is obviously something that you, uh, that John Finnis, and that many others, including Hadley Arcus, who's my old professor, have been um, working on for many years. What are the specific legal and constitutional issues involved what are the prospects of enshrining that concept in law? And kind of related, what are the limitations in legal reasoning that Dobbs articulated? What what do you think should have been different? And um, what are the steps that might be taken towards um, a sort of stronger establishment of, of those ideas in law? Well, good. I, I had forgotten, Susanna, that you had worked with my beloved friend, uh, Professor Hadley Arcus. He's <laughs> a great hero of the pro-life movement. And uh, uh, June 24th of, uh, of uh, 2022 uh, was as much his day as anyone's day yeah. when, uh, when Roe finally fell, uh, deservedly fell, uh, and, uh, and Dobbs uh, liberated uh, the American people to enter the uh, democratic deliberation domain and begin the process of protecting unborn children. In the brief that Professor Finnis and I uh, submitted, uh, we argued that a, pro a proper understanding of the original public meaning in the post-Civil War period of the 14th Amendment required that uh, states protect unborn children against elective abortions. 
that is abortions in cases where the pregnancy poses no threat uh, to the life or severe threat to the health of the of the mother. Uh, we argued that the court itself should declare that to be the case, uh, which would in effect invalidate any state laws that failed to accord uh, protection to unborn children by prohibiting elective abortions. Now, at the same time, uh, we recognize that uh, mercifully, rarely by historical standards, but it's still the case to some extent today, despite our wonderful modern medicine, that a pregnancy can pose a serious threat to maternal health. Ectopic pregnancies are good examples of that. And there are some other examples. And in those cases, as has always been the case in our law, where the life of the mother is at risk as a result of the pregnancy, we have argued, the pro-life movement has always argued, the law has always recognized that you can perform acts precisely designed to preserve maternal life even when the foreseen side effect of performing those acts results in fetal death. Is fetal this is death. the so-called principle of double effect. That's sometimes called the principle of, of double effect. I, I don't particularly like that characterization uh, of it. Uh, the key thing is to understand that in these cases, fetal death is not the precise object of the act. In these cases, fetal death is outside the scope of intention of the person performing the act. We can tell that simply by doing the thought experiment. If miraculously, despite what we thought was going to happen, the baby survives, have you accomplished everything that you set out to accomplish? Well, yes, if the mother, uh, mother's health is preserved, her life is preserved, uh, and the baby doesn't die. We've still accomplished everything we sought out. We sought to accomplish. So, so we didn't seek to accomplish the baby's death. That was outside the scope of inten intention, even if it's uh, foreseen and and uh, and accepted. Uh, uh, our adversaries, the people who are promoting abortion today, have sunk. Uh, and I don't mean to demonize them here. Uh, I just wish they would stick to the truth about this. They have sunk to claiming that the pro-life movement would prohibit um, uh, surgical interventions to protect maternal life in the case, for example, of ectopic pregnancies. That has never been the position of the pro-life uh, movement as a movement. It's not my position. It's not the position of the, the Catholic Church or the evangelical community or the Bruderhof community or any other community that stands for pro-life uh, 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 principle. We do understand that sometimes, tragically, one, the good news is it's rarer than it used to be, but still sometimes, tragically, there's no way to preserve maternal life without performing an act that will result in, in fetal death. And, and that act should be permissible because fetal death is outside the scope of intention. You're not targeting the baby precisely for, uh, for, for death. Um, so I, I want to get that uh, message out there uh, just because so much misinformation and disinformation is floating, uh, floating around here, and it really should stop. Well, I think that's an important uh, note to make. The other thing that I often see happening is a complete ignorance of the long work of crisis pregnancy centers, as if those things had never existed. Where it hasn't been ignored, it has been attacked. This is really an outrage. Here are people, mostly women, if you, if you, if you uh, go to these crisis pregnancy centers, the heroes who operate those centers are overwhelmingly women. Uh, and these women are heroes. And despite that, they have been under constant harassment from the so-called pro-choice side, from pro-choice politicians, from pro-choice activists. The people promoting abortion have tried to shut down the centers that give women an effective choice, an actual choice. They give them an alternative to the destruction of the child by, by abortion. This is a pretty good indicator of bad faith on the part of many people. And remember, I'm the guy who says, don't demonize the opposition. And I don't want to demonize the opposition. But there is a plain fact that many on the pro-choice side, including politicians, have done their best to harass and disable and shut down our wonderful pro-life crisis pregnancy centers that provide genuine love and care and material and moral support to women in need. And it's disgraceful to take action or to uh, uh, smear or defame 
those programs, those centers, and the people, mostly women, who work in those centers. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of reporting a piece um, for Pete on crisis pregnancy centers. And I so I, I have these stats at my fingertips, which is really fun. In 2019, the value of the goods and services provided by the 2,700 centers affiliated with the three major networks was, wait, shoot. It, okay, it's a lot. I'm, I'm going to drop this, these stats in the, 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 in the show notes. Um, just under 2 million were served that year by almost 70,000 staff. Eight out of 10 of them are volunteers. Um, yeah, this is, this is an apps and basically that kind, that le- level of, um, support like that, that kind of, um, value of, 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 of support has been going on for the 50 years since Roe. I mean, obviously backdated to the appropriate um, dollar amounts in earlier years. This has just been a phenomenal, phenomenally um, valuable effort. There, uh, Susanna, uh, there, Susanna, is the evidence of uh, the way in which our movement has brought love and care and concern to mother and baby alike. That's how we love them both. That's the practical way that we love them both by caring for both, by protecting both, extending the mantle of protection uh, over both, spending time, spending money, uh, putting all the resources that we can make available uh, to the cause of uh, bringing this care. And again, it's it's not just material, it's also moral, it's also spiritual, but this care to, to women who are very often in need. One of the, one of the most disgraceful things that we've witnessed in the wake of Roe is physical attacks on our crisis pregnancy centers. Arson attacks, uh, graffiti attacks on our centers, threats against our pro-life centers. What's that all about? Where is that coming from? This is outrageous. These are attacking the people who care for women in need. Yeah, it's it's something that astonishes me and the um the other sort of aspect of it is that I think seven like something like 17% is public funding almost all of it is very small value private donations and I want those private donations to continue I make them myself uh, but we also do need public support the government of the United States to its eternal discredit and shame has poured hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars more than that into the pro-abortion cause over the last 50 years. Uh, That's a bad use of money, a use of money to kill or promote the killing of unborn babies. Uh, I would be be thrilled if even a percentage, say 20% of that kind of money could go into supporting our crisis pregnancy centers. That would make a huge difference for women as well as protecting their, their babies. That would give women a genuine alternative to, you know, resorting to the killing of the child. I mean, I can't help but think most mothers do not want to do away with the child in the womb. They, they, they do it under a kind of duress very often. They, they, they don't see where else to turn, what else they can do. And we know in many cases of the t- dreadful psychological effects on women of, of making that choice or so-called so-called choice. So we could spare women that, many, many women that, by making more resources available. And part of that should really be governmental assistance. The money that has been going to Planned Parenthood should be going to our crisis pregnancy centers, our pro-life centers. So I'd like to drill a bit more to that, Robbie, uh, because as you said earlier, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision really returns these questions to the Democratic Forum in a way that they haven't been since 1973. The thing is that the Roe decision for the pro-life movement did help crystallize things, right? There was this very specific focus uh, that one could galvanize a a pretty broad coalition around. Um, Unfortunately, not, you know, not a fully broad American coalition, but, you know, Catholics and evangelicals in 1973 weren't talking to each other very much. Um, You know, the abortion issue, the Roe decision itself, 
kind of resorted American politics in many ways. Things like supporting mothers are much more debatable, much more diffuse. There's much more uh, prudential decision-making to be done. Uh, how do you think about that? It just seems like there's uh, a kind of clarity to the moral issues raised by laws permitting or even promoting the killing of the unborn versus the kind of harder work of supporting mothers, supporting families, supporting kids. Well, we have to do it all. Uh, now, I know that there are many people who are pro-choice, they identify as pro-choice, they'll tell poll takers that they're pro-choice, they'll tell friends that they're pro-choice, but who are deeply ambivalent about abortion. And I can't help but think that by reaching out the hand of friendship to them in this new Dobbs era, the post-Roe era, uh, we can persuade them to work with us where we have common ground, and that is protecting mothers and helping mothers to avoid feeling the necessity to abort their, their children. Now, unfortunately, that won't be everybody. And again, I don't want to demonize people on the other side. I'm against demonizing. I warn people not to demonize people on the other side. There are many people of goodwill, reasonable people of goodwill on the other side. There are some in the pro-abortion movement who will not cooperate with us, even uh, when it comes to what should be common ground, providing aid and assistance uh, to women in need so that they won't have to have abortions or feel they have to have uh, abortions. There are some who are so fanatically committed to the abortion cause that they will not join hands with us. They have in a certain sense, and I so deeply regret to say this or even use the word, they have sacramentalized abortion. It's become a kind of um, touchstone uh, for them so that they cannot do anything, bring themselves to do anything or work with anybody who wants to actually provide real alternatives to, uh, to abortion. And uh, we just have to pray that their hearts will be softened and that we can reach them. But that's, I think, and hope and trust a minority of people who say that they're pro-choice. I, I hope and, and trust that the majority will be willing to work with us on the common ground of bringing some badly necessary funding uh, to centers that will give women very practical, very real alternatives to the lethal violence of abortion. There are also sort of um, initiatives out there, including the the Romney plan and others that kind of um, would envision a, a more robust role for government in supporting women and families in general, um, just, you know, given that, you know, as, as it's been shown to be the case, the majority, I think it's the first um, reason that women give for seeking abortion is financial uncertainty, or that's one of the top two in basically every um, poll. There has been this kind of like um, libertarian alliance between sort of social conservatives and libertarians in the past. Do you think that there's going to be able to be a role for um, more robust government help um, that many in the pro-life movement will be will be behind going forward. Uh, yes, I've already said enough that uh, I, I know you can tell that I believe there's a bigger role for government than perhaps our libertarian friends would would permit. Now, uh, I'm not for unlimited government, nor do I think government alone has responsibility here. This is why I said earlier that I think that there are also important roles uh, for private initiative. I think we uh, should continue to contribute financially and in every other way we can uh, to the support of uh, women who are in need. I do that uh, myself. My mother has always done that. Other members of my family have always done that. I don't want the government taking over everything. Uh, but what we can do consistently with the principle of subsidiarity, I'm for government doing. I don't want government to displace the role of private initiative, but I don't have to I don't think it has to be either or. There are ways in which public and private support can be combined to do the best we can do uh, for women who are in need. And there, there's other legislation that needs to be done, pro-family legislation. There, there, there's alterations to our tax laws, the child tax credit. There, 
there, there are reforms in a number of areas that would be very helpful here to women in need and others. Uh, I'm for a pro-family agenda uh, at the state level and at the federal level legislatively. For the federal role, I commend everybody to look at work writings by Patrick Brown, uh, who's a longtime congressional staffer, a personal friend of mine, uh, someone who has, has put out a, a plan, uh, a pro-family agenda uh, for legislation at the federal level. And I think what he's on to there makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he's, he's doing excellent work. I think he's at EPPC as well. I think that's right. And uh, like so many uh, of the best scholars these days at uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center uh, under the, the new president, uh, Ryan Anderson, who is an incredibly fine scholar and great leader. Obviously, we've been focusing very much on the question of abortion in America. Um, we don't just have readers in America. We've got readers all over the world. I've heard many people argue that some kind of solution, like some kind of compromise solution, um, something like they have in Germany, where abortion is essentially legal up to 12 weeks and quite difficult after that, um, but very, very common before that, is that like uh, one of the things that I'm worried about is that there will be a um, loss of energy in the pro-life movement if something like that happens, because it seems to me that one of the reasons that there's not as robust an abortion move or a pro-life movement in the UK and and especially in Europe is that abortion is kind of like, um, you know, their abortion laws are not as liberal. Does that make any sense? And is that something that we should be worried about? I, I yes, yes, Suzanne, I see exactly what you're saying, and I think it's a legitimate worry. Uh, we, I think, have to sustain within the pro-life movement a culture that embraces the incrementalist strategy which would see uh, the change from our current law or what until yesterday was our current law uh, to something more like the German law as a huge step forward but does not see the German law as the final stage. Uh, incrementalism means we always need to be moving forward, looking for opportunities, educating the public so that we can get to the next step with the ultimate goal being protecting every child in law and welcoming every child in life, where we have a legal culture and a broader culture that are pro-life in the most robust sense, uh, protecting babies before birth, protecting babies after birth, protecting mothers while they're expecting, prote protecting mothers and families when baby has has been has been born uh, uh, accepting gratefully whatever progress we can make in this legislative session or that legislative session but without ever thinking that we're at the final spot until we are at the final spot when we have protected every every child um, and 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 well you know created an environment that's welcoming for for every child I hope that we will uh, someday uh, get there um, I also uh, know that I will not live to see that. I, I do hope I live to see a good deal more progress. But in my own prayers, and I am definitely not Moses, but I do in my own prayers ask God for this, if he would do me this kindness. Even though I know I can't live to see the day when we reach our ultimate goal, where we really do embrace as a nation, as a people, perhaps as a world, the profound and inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family, could I at least be allowed to go to the mountaintop and see across to the promised land? I just want to be able to glimpse it, even though I won't get there. You know, that that leads into the next thing that I'd love to ask you, Robbie, and this is uh, how much is the specific issue of abortion, uh, which is one of the great you know, big and central pro-life issues, how much is it coupled with other pro-life issues? Uh, of course, looking back historically, it was really the advent of Christianity in Western culture in particular, but also elsewhere, uh, that f first widely established the idea that, for instance, uh, infanticide is wrong, uh, that uh, euthanasia of the disabled is wrong. Uh, there's a, a range of things like this, and it seems to me that just as we're 
I think those of us who agree that the unborn deserve the same right to life as, as any other human being uh, are, are celebrating the Dobbs decision in this country, those old forces of a kind of utilitarian calculus about human life reappear elsewhere. I'm particularly thinking about uh, our neighbors to the north in Canada. Uh, there's been increasingly disturbing news from there. Just over the course of the summer, uh, it's kind of bubbled up of use of uh, their new medical assistance and dying law uh, being extended further and further out, even to infants, even to the disabled, even uh, as in the case, some cases in Belgium, uh, to those who are simply clinically depressed. Uh, this is often tied to uh, kind of financial uh, considerations. What will this save our health service system if people who cost us a lot of money, you know, are kind of helped to exit life a little earlier? So how how tightly are, are issues like this coupled and what, you know, what kind of attention should we be giving to these things that aren't related to the abortion debate in the United States directly? Well, they are related indirectly. Uh, once you compromise the principle of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family, it's no holds barred. At that point, there is no principled basis for stopping here rather than there. Uh, it's why you see the slide right down the slippery slope from abortion to the killing of the elderly to the hearing killing of the cognitively disabled or the physically handicapped to those who are inconvenient to us. Uh, it, 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 once you admit uh, that it's okay to violate the central norm of our tradition against the direct killing, at least of the innocent, I, I would extend it to all direct killing, as you know, but once you license uh, the, the, the right, so-called right, or claim that it is right, uh, to allow the, the killing of innocent human beings. There just is no stopping place. There's no logical stopping place. And, and pretty soon you are where Canada now is and some European jurisdictions now are, which is killing people because they're depressed, uh, uh, participating in, cooperating in their suicides, facilitating their suicides, uh, allowing people to be pressured uh, into, quote, wanting, unquote, uh, suicide. Uh, young, otherwise physically healthy people who are clinically depressed uh, for whatever reason, instead of meeting their needs, instead of actually caring for them, we end up killing them. And that is just tragic and disgraceful. Our motto, if I can quote my beloved late friend, Richard John Newhouse, the great uh, father, Richard John Newhouse, our motto needs to be always to care, never to kill. Always to care, never to kill. Killing is never a form of caring. A person is to be loved, cherished, protected, stood by in solidarity, not to be killed. Killing is not the answer. It seems to me that um, a lot of these questions get at a kind of more basic sense of an appropriate non-sovereignty over our own lives. Um, the idea that we when we when we take our own lives in our hands or when we take another person's life in in our hands we're we're holding something that's sacred and that it's not up to us to dispose of i'm not sure how you can quite separate out the question of suicide even from the question of murder um whether it's whether it be murder of you know young children um you know before they're born or, or after they're born or of the disabled all of these seem to me to be a question of how do we understand what it means to have agency in our lives, but not the right of life and death over human lives, because there's something that is so profoundly sacred about them, that even our own lives are not ours to dispose of. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we can get that back. That seems, that seems to me to be something that I thought that we had sort of settled on, um, you know, with the end of the Roman slave state and the Roman infanticide state and, you know, the gradual um, loosening of slavery in Europe, and then it sort of came back with slavery in the New World, um, the sense of people having this kind of horrific right over other people. 
Um, and then it ha has come back, I think, with a greater norm of, you know, suicide itself being okay, or euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia being okay. And I just don't see how we can get a sort how how can we get that sense of the sacredness of human life back? Well, we have to overcome the prevailing ideology. We have to defeat the prevailing ideology that uh, that creates the mentality or manifests the mentality that you're talking about there, Susanna. Uh, and that is an ideology shaped by what the late uh, sociologist Robert Bellock called expressive individualism. In a culture of expressive individualism, there will be a religion that will emerge, and it has emerged in modern Western cultures. Uh, it's very radically unlike biblical religion. It's very radically unlike uh, Judaism and Christianity. It's radically unlike Islam. It's actually quite radically unlike the great, unlike the great Eastern traditions, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, for example. Uh, it is what uh, another great pro-life hero uh, who's gone before, Robert P. Casey, the former governor of Pennsylvania, was a great pro-life hero. And he called this religion that has emerged in the culture of expressive individualism, the cult of the imperial self. We live in an age of the cult of the imperial self. In this religion, and this is what distinguishes it from the great faiths East and West, in this religion, there are no unchosen obligations. The only moral obligations we have are those we freely assent to, we give ourselves. In a sound religion, <laughs> you are going to recognize, as all the great faiths, again, East and West do, that some of our most stringent and important obligations are not obligations we ourselves have chosen. We didn't choose to be born into a particular family but we have certain obligations to our families. We have certain obligations in virtue of being born into this particular family. We didn't get chose, we didn't choose to be born as Americans. Nobody chose to, chose to be born English or Scottish or Chinese. And yet there are some obligations that we have to our nation simply because with, through no choice of our own, uh, we uh, are born in this nation rather than that nation. We're citizens of this nation rather than, than that uh, nation. The, the fundamental dividing line is, do you believe that we have certain unchosen obligations or, or not? If your faith is the cult of the imperial self, you believe we do not. If you've got some other faith, your likely belief is that we do and that those are very stringent. Certainly for Christians and Jews and Muslims, this is a very stringent obligation, the obligation to protect human life in all stages and conditions. That's the sanctity of human life principle including the sanctity of our own lives. These are, I've, I've often sort of thought about, yeah, I've often thought about the That's idea right. of being born as being drafted and we're not allowed to go AWOL from that, from that calling. Yeah, uh, we don't own ourselves. This is a mistake that the Enlightenment philosopher John Locke made. Uh, he, he supposed that human beings own themselves. And you can see why people fall into that error. They think, well, if... Uh, if I don't own myself, then who owns me? Uh, does the state own me? Can somebody else own me as a slave? Uh, if, if I Certainly the state doesn't own me. We don't want to admit that principle. Uh, we don't want to think other people can own me. Then I must own myself. But of course, it's a straightforward fallacy if you think about it a, a moment. Uh, the alternative to not owning yourself is not the state owns you or the, uh, uh, the slaveholder owns you. It's that you are a, th a person rather than a thing and as such are not the sort of entity that can be owned. You can't be owned by the state. You can't be owned by the slaveholder. You can't be owned by yourself. You are not owned. Your obligations do not follow from who owns you, self or state or another person. They, they obtain in virtue of other considerations, considerations of ultimately, I think, considerations of integral human uh, well-being and, and the most foundational principle of all ethics is the principle of the profound and inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. That's what gives us uh, the inviolability of the self as well as the inviolability of others. And in the Jewish and Christian traditions, in the biblical tradition, this is articulated in the very first chapter of the very first book of our sacred scripture, the Bible, the book of Genesis where we are told that man, though fashioned from the mere dust of the earth, that the human being 
unlike the brute animals, is made in the very image and likeness of the divine creator and ruler of all that is. That's the biblical expression, the biblical presentation of the foundation of our dignity, the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of every member of the human family. We, we don't have ultimate sovereignty, power of life and death over any other human being or indeed over ourselves. We don't enjoy that kind of sovereignty. We are God-like and therefore have a special dignity, but we are not God. We are not Lord of life and death. And that is the kind of indissoluble core at the heart of the pro-life movement and perhaps where we should uh, wrap up our conversation. Uh, we may not have solved everything about what the future of the pro-life movement should be, but at least you've given us a, a great insight and, and a pointer to where we should head. I guess that returns us to Lincoln's second inaugural address, Robbie. Yes, with malice toward none and charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us continue and finish the work we have done. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you for your work and, and all your uh, support and, and you know advice to, to plow. And we really appreciate your joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Susanna. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine. Or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, the final episode of this series, Susanna will be speaking with rabbi and philosopher Zohar Adkins, and then we'll be taking your questions. 